and uh, next week is when we're starting our series in 1 Samuel. So be reading 1 Samuel uh, in your own Bible reading this week, getting ready for that. Uh, so we've got this sort of one week gap tonight and I thought what we would do is sort of have story time with Uncle Phil tonight. So <laughs> that's what we're doing. Uh, but not just any story. What we're going to do is we're going to jump to another book in the Old Testament just for this one week. So we're dealing with this whole book of Esther. So if you remember a few weeks ago we looked at uh, Ruth. I thought let's look, another, look at another great woman from the Old Testament, this, uh, this woman Esther. And my hope is that you'll sort of get into it tonight. You'll like the story, you'll be intrigued by it, uh, and it will lead you to want to read it and think about some of the things I've said and really get stuck into this book of the Bible. Uh, I've actually been waiting for an opportunity to talk about the book of Esther for quite a while since I spent some time with a friend of mine who is a Jewish Christian. Uh, so he's a guy who grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home uh, he went to synagogue, learned Hebrew as a child, uh, and uh, he used to be actually part of the synagogue choir here in Sydney. He would chant Hebrew and all that sort of thing. Uh, but he went to university, and uh, someone there told him about Jesus, and he became a Christian, uh, which is actually what is the most wonderful thing in the world. When a Jewish person comes to know their Messiah, we have to remember that Jesus is first the Messiah, the Saviour of the Jews, before we, the Gentiles, uh, are included, unless you're a Jewish person when I say we, the Gentiles. So it's the most natural thing in the world for a Jewish person to become a Christian. But this mate of mine, he was telling me about how one of the things he loved most about his Jewish upbringing was the festivals. Uh, and what he particularly loves is now as a Christian, he gets to see what those festivals were really about the whole time. He used to celebrate them as a Jew, but now he sees that they're all pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, and he gets to explain that to his Jewish family and friends. And one of the ones uh, he was telling me about was the Festival of Purim. Has anyone ever heard of the Festival of Purim? A few people? Well, one of the reasons I was intrigued by that festival and why I was interested by it is it's right here in our Bibles. Uh, Purim is in Esther chapter 9. That's where it comes from, this festival that Jews still today. And what the Jews do when they celebrate Purim is they remember how God saved his people from being annihilated by a man called Haman uh, 2,500 years ago. So Jewish people have celebrated Purim for all these years, for over two millennia. Jesus would have celebrated Purim. Uh, and for Jews, uh, people then and now, Purim is like a big party. It's like Christmas time for us. They even have uh, Purim plays sort of like our nativity plays, and every Jewish girl in the synagogue wants the part of Esther. Uh, so like, you know, the little girl gets to be Mary. When my kids were at preschool, they're at, or at school now, when they were at preschool, every year they would do the Christmas concert and they would have the token Christian bit, even though I wasn't a Christian preschool, and each of my kids got to either be Joseph or Mary. And I think that's just because they thought that's the minister's kid, so they're not going to get offended by getting a Bible part. So you know, But anyway, uh, the little girls in the synagogue want to be Esther. They don't want to be Mary, they want to be Esther. My friend was telling me what happens during this festival is, uh, as I say, it's a lot like Christmas, lots of eating, lots of drinking. Orthodox Jews are not allowed to drink, but at Purim you can. So there you go. Uh, and what happens more importantly is the whole book of Esther is read out in the synagogue which sounds great. Unfortunately, it's read in Hebrew and not many people understand it all. But what everyone does is they wait 
it's really fun, they all get given, you know, like bell, those things you circle around like that that make a loud noise and so forth. And uh, when, the, when the rabbi's chanting out the Hebrew, when he gets to certain names of key people in the story, everyone yells and shakes these things and so forth. And in particular, it's when he says the name Haman, because Haman is the bad guy in the story, as we're looking at. You might want to do that tonight. You might have brought one of those along. I don't know. But anyway, maybe not. Um, but he's the bad guy. So when his name gets, even as they're hearing the Hebrew, but everyone hears Haman. And then everyone boos and hisses and, and says, you know, ah, down with Haman. Uh, and there's total silence until that happens. And then the synagogue sort of explodes in noise. And then on the other side, when the two good guys get mentioned, when Mordecai, he's one of the good guys, or Esther, Get mentioned, everyone yells, yay, go Esther, go Mordecai, and that sort of thing. So we'll try that tonight. Uh, but as I said before, as fondly as my friend, this Jewish Christian friend, uh, remembers this ceremony, and he still does it today with his kids, he still does this with his family, uh, as fondly as he remembers it, he, he actually gets really sad as he remembers it, because he gets really sad that all of these people are celebrating God's faithfulness and how he saves his people. But they're focusing on this salvation that happened 2,500 years ago instead of the real salvation that really matters for all time when Jesus came to save his people. And so what I want to hope we'll do tonight is we're going to look at this whole book of Esther uh, and I hope we'll see how it points us forward to Christ. I hope we'll do that together. Uh, more than that, I hope you'll get excited by it, as I said before, and if you haven't read it, you'll go home this week and read it. It's only about eight pages in your Bibles, about ten chapters uh, so that's what I'm hoping for. All right? It would be great if you had it open, because it's very rare that we deal with 10 chapters in one night, and you'll find it helpful to have it open in front of you. I think you'll struggle. This is where you struggle if you've, you use a smartphone tonight to be sort of doing that. You'll end up with RSI of the finger sort of thing going through. Uh, so if you need a... Oh, I was going to say... Oh, there's some here. So if you need a Bible so you can be following along, put up your hand now. There's no shame in it. Put up your hand. And one of my friends down the front here, like Troy... Is, uh, is going to get one too, but no one's putting up their hand. So let's go open up your Bibles, page 443. We've got one of the black church Bibles. And what I'm going to start by doing is, as I said, story time with Phil tonight. Uh, I'm going to tell you the whole story going through, just pointing out a few verses as we go, and then we're going to think about some of the consequences and what it means. So the first thing we need is the historical context. At the time of Esther... Uh, the Jews are in a foreign land. They're, they're under foreign rule. Uh, by this time, the Jews had sort of been spread out and taken and spread around all of the Jewish, sorry, all of the Persian Empire. It's the 5th century BC, that's when we're talking about. Uh, and they're under the rule of King Xerxes. Uh, our Bibles say Ahusserus, which is his other name, as he was also known, but he's more commonly known as Xerxes, and you've probably seen movies with King Xerxes killing people and all that sort of thing. And he ruled from 485 BC to 465 BC. So that's the time frame we're talking about. And by this time, if you know your Old Testament, some of the Jews have already gone back to the Promised Land. You can read about that in Ezra and in Nehemiah. But many of the Jews, as I said, are still scattered around the 127 provinces. That tells you how massive this empire was, the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. And the events of Esther take place in the capital city called Susa. So the story starts, if you open there in chapter 1, with the king of Persia, the great king Xerxes. Here he is, and he holds a banquet to celebrate his great empire. That's what Eddie read for us before. And after seven days of partying, 
Uh, it tells us he summons his favorite wife to show her off. That's what he's doing. He summons his favorite wife, Queen Vashti, to show her off to all the other men who were at this party. But Vashti did something absolutely unthinkable. She refused to come. Uh, you might think that's not that unthinkable, but this is well before women's lib. We're not talking Princess Kate here and that sort of thing. To refuse to come was to challenge the king's authority. That's what she was doing. And so, after a long story that we read, she was banished, she was removed as queen, she was really lucky to live. Uh, that was the end of Vashti, she was gone. And the king decides he has to find a replacement. And that's where we get to chapter 2. So in chapter 2, the king starts looking for a queen to replace Vashti. All the young women are presented to him. It's like the ancient version of the Miss Universe competition. It really is. Uh, it's like that. Every woman gets sort of paraded before him and of them all he chooses this girl Esther the beautiful Esther is chosen to become the queen of all the Persian empire he had many other wives but this was to be the number one wife replacing Vashti and it's at this point that our story starts to focus in on those three most important characters the two good guys and the one bad guy so the two good guys if you remember are Esther and Mordecai and Esther and Mordecai are both Jews. But Esther hasn't let on to the king that she's a Jew. So she's a Jew, but no one knows she's a Jew. And Mordecai was Esther's cousin, but a lot older than her. And it seems her parents had died. She, he was her guardian. He was the, sort of the fellow who was responsible for looking after her. And Mordecai was sort of a canny sort of fellow. Uh, he managed to, quite literally, get into the king's good books. That's what Mordecai did. What happened was he overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes and he works out a way to get around and tells the king and so forth. So he gets in the king's good books and uh, this point, the king says, record this in my record books. So Mordecai's name is written down forever in the king's record books as the man who saved my life. Uh, though it seems the king didn't really know much about who Mordecai was. It was sort of just, write that, remember that bloke, write his name down for me so one day we'll remember to help him out, that sort of thing. So at this point, end of chapter 2, things are going quite well for the Jews in the Persian kingdom, in particular for Mordecai and Esther. But then in chapter 3, if you flick over to chapter 3, we meet the bad guy. Now, in verse 1, we hear that Haman... Hey, well done. Okay. The Agagite, Haman the Agagite, is promoted to sort of be like the Prime Minister. That's what he gets put up there, the man under the king. And Haman has a big ego and he wants everyone to recognise how important he is. And he says, everyone, except King Xerxes, because he shouldn't, but everyone else has to bow down to me. When I walk around, you've got to get down and bow down to me because I am the most important person other than King Xerxes in the kingdom. And everyone does it except... Mordecai. Well, Mordecai won't do it. And that makes Haman furious. He gets totally angry. He wants revenge. And when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and actually if you go back in your Old Testaments, you discover that there's actually a bit of history between Agagites and Jews, but that's for another day. When he decides, oh, Mordecai's a Jew. He's not just someone who, who doesn't like me. He, he's a Jew. He decides, I don't just want revenge on Mordecai. I want revenge on all the Jewish people. So Haman sets his evil plan in motion. 
This is all in chapter 3. He gets, literally in today's term, millions of dollars from the king's treasury set aside for this one task, exterminating the Jewish people from all 127 provinces of the Persian kingdom. And he gets the king to sign an order to, if you want to look it up, look at chapter 3, verse 13, uh, which is on the top of page 446. He gets an order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jewish people young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions. You're starting to get a sense for why they hiss when Haman's name comes out, I think. It's genocide. That's what it is. That's what he wants to do to the Jews. And then Haman and his buddies, what they do is they pick a date when this genocide is going to happen. And in that time, the way you discerned the will of the gods was by rolling the dice or by casting lots So they roll the dice to work out what date will we kill all the Jews on and they come up with a date. It falls on the 12th month. They're in the first month at that time. So in 11 months' time, on the 13th day of the 12th month, we will kill every Jew in the world. That's the plan. And that's where they get the word Purim from because the word Purim is the Hebrew word for dice or for the lots. So that's where we're at. But this is where Esther comes in as the hero or heroine of the story. Because what Haman and the king don't realise, and what we know is true, is that Esther is Jewish. And back in chapter 2, Mordecai had actually told Esther, don't let anyone know you're Jewish. Keep your ethnicity a secret. Don't let the king know that you're a Jewess. And so she'd done that, so no one knows that actually the king's favourite queen is a Jew. So we come to chapter 4. And they go around reading out this decree all around the empire that on this 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew will be exterminated. Uh, And there's great distress. And and Mordecai, like all the Jews, puts on sackcloth and rubs ashes on his head and a wailing in the streets uh, and sort of mourning. And so when Esther sees him, remember, she's sort of locked away in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. When she sees him, she says, what's going on? Why are you and all the other Jews in mourning? Uh, And he tells her about it and he tells her, you are the one, Esther, you are the only one who can save God's people. Uh, And if you think about it, by admitting she was a Jew, which she would have to do to save God's people, she was actually appealing for her own life as well. That's what was happening here. But there was a problem. Remember what happened to Vashti when when the king didn't like what she did? Well, Esther may have been the queen, but this wasn't the modern world. We're not talking Kate and William and all that sort of thing. For her to approach the king uninvited was not allowed, and it carried the death penalty to do that. Uh, And we've already seen how he dealt with Queen Vashti, as I said before. But even so, Esther says, I'll risk death and I'll approach the king. So that brings us to chapter 5, if you turn. We're on 446, chapter 5. Uh, where Esther takes her life into her hands. So the king allows Esther an audience and spares her life, which is a wonderful thing. And more than that, he's so pleased with her, he's so besotted with her, that he says to her, I will give you anything you want, anything at all, even up to half of my kingdom. So she can ask for whatever she wants, even up to half his kingdom. And so Esther thinks about it and she says, well, actually, first of all, what I want is I want to prepare a banquet, a dinner, for you and your Prime Minister, Haman. That's what I want to do. I want to prepare a banquet for you. And so she gives them the banquet, 
And at the banquet, the king asks her again. He, he says, what do you want me to give you? But again, she holds off and she says, no, no, come again tomorrow because I want to put on another banquet for you and Haman. And what we're told is Haman left in high spirits because he thinks, not only am I the king's favourite, I'm the queen's favourite as well. The queen has honoured me in this special way. But even still, Haman is not... You've stopped hissing now, which is all right. But anyway, (laughs) Haman still wasn't 100% happy. You're going to hiss in a minute when you hear what he does. Because he still thinks Mordecai is being a pain. He really doesn't like Mordecai. So he goes and talks to his wife and some of his mates. And they say, well, this is what you should do. You should build a massive gallows, you know, a hanging platform right in the middle of the city, 75 feet high. That's like over 20 metres high. Build this massive gallows and then go to the king and ask permission to hang Mordecai on this massive gallows. That will make you happy. Then you'll be satisfied once you've really shown Mordecai who's boss and you've humiliated him and killed him in this horrible way. So to cheer himself up, basically... Haman builds these gallows, 75 feet high, 20 metres high, and then he goes and he's about to go in and ask the king for permission to get Mordecai and hang him on the gallows. But meanwhile, the king hasn't been able to sleep. He sort of got insomnia. So his servants brought him the equivalent of an ancient sleeping tablet. What they brought him was the books of the records of the kings of Persia to read. Because I thought, that'll put you to sleep. It's a bit like me, if I'm struggling, I get the parish council minutes out. You know, and, oh, look, we replaced the gutters at St. James Cup. You know, and there we go. So I think, well, that's what it was like for the king. And he's reading it. And he's there, and as he reads it, he comes to this point about how there was an assassination plot to kill him and how this man Mordecai saved his life. And, and so he says, he calls his advisors in and he says, I'd forgotten about this. What have we done to reward this loyal servant, Mordecai, who saved my life? And they said to him, nothing. We just sort of wrote it in the book and we didn't do anything about it. And it's at that point that Haman walks into the room. Now look with me at chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6. It's a great point in the book. So the king says to Haman as he walks in, verse 6, what should be done for the man the king wants to honour? It's a beautiful moment in the story because Haman's walking in and in his hubris he, he thinks, the king's talking about me. The king's talking about me. The king wants to honour me. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't I beautiful? Aren't I amazing? Uh, it's great comedy, isn't it? And Haman says, well, what you should do is you should clothe this man, me, in royal clothes, the nicest clothes there are, and you should get one of your other nobles to parade him around the city on sort of a massive horse, and telling everyone, calling out, this man is great. This man is honoured by the king. And so the king says, that is great advice, Haman. That is great advice. And so he says, Haman, can you go and do that for Mordecai? And now you can just imagine Haman's anger and humiliation at this point. He was coming to ask, can I hang Mordecai on those gallows? And the king says, no, no, no put the royal robe on him put him on a horse, and you lead him around telling everyone what a great guy he is. His downfall has begun. The the tables have started to turn, but there's more to come for evil old Haman. Because in chapter 7, the next day, there's one person still hissing over here. 
In chapter 7, uh, the next day goes to that banquet. Remember the banquet he was looking forward to with the king and with Queen Esther. Uh, and when the king asks Esther again for her request, she finally reveals it in chapter 7, verse, verse 2. She says, King, there is an enemy who has plotted to take my life and the lives of all my people. Remember, he doesn't know she's Jewish. And so King Xerxes can't believe it. Who would be so evil, you know, so treasonous as to want to assassinate my favourite queen? Who would do that? And she says, him, Haman, while he's there in the room. So Haman is terrified. The king sort of storms out in a rage and Haman begs Esther for his life. But as he's begging her and as he's pleading with her, he sort of falls over on top of her on the couch and the king walks back in and says, hang on, you didn't just want to kill her, now you're groping her and molesting her and assaulting her as well. And the tables have been totally turned and the king says, what are those gallows out there? Let's hang Haman on them. And so Haman is hung or hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. It's a great story, isn't it? There's still a problem. We've still got three chapters to go. There's still a problem. Do you know what the problem is? Uh, The problem is that the Persian Empire was so massive. The Persian Empire went from what we call India right up and around across into North Africa to Ethiopia. It's got 127 promises. And the horses have already gone out reading the decree of the king that the Jews, every Jew, man, woman and child, is to be annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month. So Esther begs the king for the lives of her people. And so what the king does is he issues a new decree. Uh, There's still just enough time for the swiftest horses to be sent out to all the corners of the empire with a new decree. And what the new decree is, it says on that same day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, instead of being murdered, now the Jews can take revenge on anyone who had planned to kill them. So on the very day that their enemies were meant to, by law, kill them, every man, woman and child, now by law God's people, the Jews, were allowed to defend themselves and they could take vengeance on their enemies. And so in chapter 9, that's what happens. The enemies of the Jews are killed on the day they were meant to wipe out the Jews. The Jews exacted God's judgment on those who would have wiped them out. And we balk a little at that. I do, anyway. Uh, But there's an interesting sort of comment made several times through chapter 9 that though the Jews did kill their enemies, they didn't wipe out every man, woman and child and they didn't seize all their plunder even though they were allowed to. They only killed those who were going to take up swords against them. It's bloody and it's awful, but they showed far more grace to their enemies than had been shown to them. Uh, And so the story ends with Esther and Mordecai decreeing from on high that from that time on, on that day, the 13th day of the 12th month, that day should be celebrated as the Feast of Purim. And that has happened for 2,500 years. And it was celebrated by Jewish people in March of this year. That's when it fell, this year. So that's the story. 
of Esther, all 10 chapters in 15, 20 minutes or something. I hope I've done it justice. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, the humour, the irony, the, the great reversal. God's people were going to be wiped out by their enemies, but then their enemies were judged instead. It's a great story. But now what I want us to do, if you take out your outlines, everyone takes these out, I want us to go back and ask, what is the message of the book of Esther for us? I mean, it's a great story, good one to read, and it reminds you how exciting the Bible is. But what do we learn from this great story? You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching us, correcting us, rebuking us, and training us in righteousness. So I've got a few points. You'll see them there in your outline. The first point, and the big point of the book of Esther, is that God saves his people. That's the point. The book of Esther is, first of all, the story of a great deliverance. That's what it is. A great deliverance of God's people, the Jews. The Jews would have been annihilated if Haman had succeeded. In fact, more than that, think about this. Jesus would not have come. We would not have been saved if Haman had succeeded. You see, all of God's plans for humanity, for all of salvation, for Jew and Gentile, they would have all come to naught if Haman had succeeded in his evil plan. So like in the Exodus from Egypt, the other great salvation event in the Old Testament, long before the time of Esther, we're reminded God rescues his people. That's what God does. And so for us New Testament believers, Esther must point us forward to Christ. That's what it does. It points us forward to the true once and for all saviour of Jew and Gentile. As we read this story and we see how Esther was willing to risk her life for the salvation of her people, we think, well, how much more Jesus, who gave his life to bear the curse for God's people. See, Jesus' death and his resurrection brought about the most wonderful reversal, just like Esther did. Like the Jews of her day, we stood under the decree of death because of sin. But Jesus took it upon himself so we could walk free. So Esther reminds us, God saves his people. And as Christians read Esther, we shouldn't just thank God for the salvation 2,500 years ago. We thank God for the great once and for all salvation in Jesus. And that leads to the second and the related thing we learn from Esther, which is that God is in control. God is in control and God is always at work. It's what we call God's providence and God's sovereignty. See, you mightn't have noticed it, uh, but Esther is famous for something. Anyone know what the book of Esther is famous for? Rob's given it away. There you go. Esther doesn't mention God anywhere. We didn't read right through it, so you couldn't see that. But it's, it's a great fact. If there's a trivia contest on Invest or something, that'd be, that could be a question. Which book of the Bible? doesn't mention God at all. It's the book of Esther. Uh, see, unlike other times where God saves his people, like the Exodus that I mentioned before, there are no miracles in Esther. The, the sky doesn't go dark. A sea doesn't get parted. There are no prophets. There are no great signs. God actually seems to be absent in this book. See, God's people are scattered all across the world of the Persian Empire. They're, they're, they're scattered from India to Ethiopia. You know, they're, they're living amongst people who are worshipping pagan gods. They're, they're having to walk past pagan temples. So maybe 
People think maybe the Jews were just saved by chance. Maybe they were just lucky. Maybe the cast of the Purim, the cast of the die, was all just chance. But actually when you read this book, and I hope you do during the week, I hope you're intrigued enough to go and read right through it, you see all through it, even though he's not mentioned, God is present all through this moment in history. God is behind it all and God is in control. The key verse of the book of Esther is Esther chapter 4, verse 14. I think we printed it on your outline. Have a look there. See, Mordecai here is talking to Esther and this is what he says. He says, if you keep silent at this time, this is when he's talking to her and saying, you must go to the king and plead for your people. He says, if you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. It's been cut off there. It says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Do you see what Mordecai is saying? Even though he doesn't mention God, he's saying, I'm certain God will not let his people be destroyed. God is faithful to his promises. And I think you've been put here, Esther. I think you've been put in this position for God to use you to save his people. But if you don't do it, God will still save his people. God will still be faithful. But you will be forgotten. See, even though God isn't mentioned, the whole book is about the way God works behind the scenes of history to bring about his good purposes. That's what it's about. It's about God working in history to fulfill his promises. This whole book is about God's providence. So you think about it, the Purim, or the, the roll of the dice, when they are cast, they just happen to fall on the last month of the year. If they'd fallen on any other month, there wouldn't have been time for the Jews to be saved. In the first month, or the second month, or the sixth month, or the eighth month, there wouldn't have been time. But it fell on the twelfth month, which meant there was time for them to be saved. See, Proverbs has a wonderful verse about this. Again, it's on your outline. Look with me. Proverbs 16, verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as chance or luck in God's world. God is the one who is behind the cast of every die. See, he is the one who makes it fall where he wants it to fall. There are so many other coincidences in the story. As you read it during the week, look for them. Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear the plot to assassinate the king and do something about it. Esther is made queen at just the right time when the Jews are to be persecuted. The king happens to have insomnia that night. They just happen to bring him, of all the books, they bring him the one with Mordecai's name in it. Haman just happened to walk in at just that moment when the king's reading the book about Mordecai. All these coincidences, and that's because the coincidences are not really coincidences. You see, they are the sovereign hand of God guiding events to bring about his good purposes. The sovereign hand of God guiding events to save his people. But Esther is a bit like Ruth that we looked at last term. It's not spectacular. It's not God working in spectacular, miraculous ways. In fact, rarely in spectacular fashion. God is there behind the scenes all through the story of Esther, saving his people. That's the message of the book of Esther. God saves his people. 
Sometimes with bells and whistles, with 12 plagues and a parted sea or a, or a darkened sky and a resurrection. This time, it, it was working silently, behind the scenes, not even being mentioned. But the point is, God is behind it all and God is always at work. There's another issue I just want to deal with that Esther raises for you as you read it. And that is that what you might call problem of retribution that happens at the end of the book. Chapter 9, when you get there, is really, really hard reading where the Jews kill all their enemies. And people say, where is the grace? You know, how can we condone that? How can we apply that today as Christians? I actually think it's a key part of the book. I'll tell you why. See, God has not forgotten his promises at the time of Esther. God never forgets his promises. That's what the kids learned at Kids Holiday Club this week, isn't it? God doesn't forget his promises. See, the whole Bible is about God's promises to Abraham, back right in the beginning of Genesis. And God promised Abraham that he would save the world through him and his descendants, through his people, through the Jews, and that he would bless and protect his descendants. And in Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And that is exactly what you see happening in the book of Esther. Those who curse God's people are themselves cursed. Haman wants to hang Mordecai on the gallows, but instead he gets hung on them. All these people were sharpening their swords to kill every Jew, man, woman and child. But instead, they are the ones killed on that day. And bringing it forward to us, as ominous as it is, it is a promise of Scripture that those who curse God's people, and in particular those who curse Christ, will receive those curses on their own head. See, retribution is still part of God's faithfulness to his promises. Judgment is part of God's faithfulness to his promises. But what we must remember is, it is not our place to hand it out. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, that does not mean, though, that God will not judge people who persecute his people and people who curse the name of Jesus. He will do that at the resurrection day when Christ returns. See, there are thousands of Christians around the world today who are tortured and killed just for being Christian. And Esther reminds us that people who do that will not escape God's judgment. Even if they do escape his judgment in this lifetime, they will not escape it in the next. On the judgment day, God will raise every person who has ever lived back to life. And those who have persecuted God's people will stand before him as the judge to face his judgment. And it will be more awful than anything the Jews of Esther's day did to Haman and his cronies. God will deal with those who abuse and hate him and his people. But back to us. I think Esther is a great book for us, for Christians today. Because just like God's people at that time, we are living as aliens and strangers in our world. You know, they were aliens and strangers living in the Persian Empire. Well, we are foreigners we are aliens, we are strangers living in our world. The New Testament tells us this is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. We're just refugees here on earth. And sometimes we will face persecution. It's one of the certain promises of Scripture that we're told. If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. 
We're not really persecuted much in Australia, are we? I don't think. I wonder perhaps if we were more vocal about Jesus, we might face a bit more persecution. But we don't face great persecution like many. But even so, the main point of Esther is God cares for his people. And he cares for us even when we live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. God saved his people in Persia from the hands of those who hated them. And the book of Esther shows us how God can work quietly behind the scenes of historical events to save his people. Do you ever think about God's providential hand? Do you ever think about why you're a Christian? And how it is you came to be a Christian? And how that took thousands of things for God to do to make that happen? I mean, think about it like a a, a big level, on the big picture level. Uh, It's politically incorrect to say it, but it was God who brought the British Empire here over 200 years ago and they brought evangelical, Bible-believing chaplains to Sydney who preached the gospel. If the Belgians, not that I've got anything against Belgium, they did quite well in the World Cup, but if the Belgians or the French came, there would not be as many Bible-believing Christians in this country because in their colonies that hasn't happened. That was God's providential hand at work. There were bad things that came of it too. But that is a good thing. But think about it more at a, at a micro level. See, when I, I was living in Brisbane in 1989 and I was on a road where I would never, humanly speaking, be a Christian. And my dad did something that I really hated at the time. He moved us to Sydney. And it rained for six months when we moved to Sydney. I moved from Brisbane where it was sunny every day. And every cricket game got cancelled for six months when we moved to Sydney. But because of that, I met someone who invited me to church. And I became a Christian. That was God's providential hand. I can only see that looking back. But if I'd stayed in Brisbane, I'd probably be a drunk lawyer. That's what I'd be. But instead... I'm someone who knows the salvation of Jesus. See, it was God who gave you Christian parents who read the Bible with you every night and introduced you to Jesus so there's never been a time when you didn't know Jesus. That is God's providential hand and that's why you now know the Lord. Or it was God who brought that Christian into your life who said, I go to church in the bank at Cogram. We run these Christianity Explained groups and would you like to come with me? See, that was God's providential hand and that is the reason you now know the Lord Jesus. Or it was God who said to your parents, even though they don't go to church, I'll take him to Sunday school and drop him off with uncle, whatever his name is. Or, or, yeah, we'll tick that box, scripture at school and that faithful old lady told you about Jesus. See, God has brought you to salvation. He is behind it all. And very few of us have miraculous stories where God zapped us from on high. Someone's now saying, I do, I've got a bankruptcy. But very few of us do. Most of us have these ordinary events of history that God has shaped to bring us to faith in Christ and so to find salvation. And I want to say to you, read Esther and remember, even if things go horribly pear-shaped in this life, and for many of us they do, even if we are persecuted or we face horrible trials, even so, God will keep his promises to us. He will keep the promise of eternal life, the promise of the resurrection from the dead. See, the story of Esther is a a great example of how God works, of how God sort of reverses the tables, turns the tables. But the greatest reversal ever is the reversal of death itself, 
when Jesus rose from the dead. And that gives us hope, a certain hope, that even those who are persecuted to death as Christians have this hope, that one day Christ will return and we will know salvation forever and live with him as our king. And if the Jews at the end of Esther respond with unspeakable joy, I want to say to us as Christians, how much more should we be shouting from the rooftops that our God is faithful and he has saved his people? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that all of it is God-breathed and all of it is useful for teaching us, for, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. And we thank you for this wonderful part of your Old Testament that is so often neglected. We thank you for this book of Esther. We thank you for the way you worked all those years ago, 2,500 years ago, to keep your word and to save your people. And we thank you most of all for the way you worked 2,000 years ago to offer salvation to all people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now we give you thanks for the way you are totally in control. We thank you for the way you have worked in each individual person in this auditorium's life to bring us to faith in Jesus and so to salvation. We thank you for the way you brought a friend into our life who told us about Jesus. We thank you for the way you gave some of us faithful Christian parents who read the scriptures with us. We thank you for those who've been saved in somewhat miraculous ways. But in all of them we recognise that that was your sovereign hand at work, working for the good of those who are chosen by you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.